Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. On today's episode, I am joined by Andrew Parmenter. He is Senior Scientist and Structural Geologist at the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. And if his title wasn't a big hint for you guys, we are going to be talking rock today. All right, well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. If you wouldn't mind just taking a couple of seconds and introducing yourself so our listeners know who you are. Yeah, thanks very much, Sheila. So my name is Andy Parmenter, and I am a geologist. I work for the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. I've been working with NWMO for the last uh, 11 years, and I have a undergraduate and master's degrees in earth sciences from the University of Waterloo. Awesome. And what did you do before you worked for the NWMO? Uh, well, you know, I uh, spent uh, a lot of time in, in graduate school, so I, I, I did a lot of my, my earlier career as a geologist uh, doing uh, field work, field geology, and a little bit of time in exploration and a lot of time uh, doing research as part of uh, graduate work. Okay, cool. Um, so let's just start off with a little talk about geology in general and why it's considered a barrier in the DGR. What is it about geology that makes it important to the project? Well, you know, it's a good question. And I think to just say it's, you know, not all rock is a suitable potential barrier, um, especially the type of work we're doing. You are looking for a rock with with certain uh, specific characteristics. Ultimately, it should be, um, you know, as a, as a barrier, it, it can resist the transmission of fluids, for example. You know, it should be very impermeable should also be, you know, you also have to look at the depth of the specific formation that you're targeting. You want to make sure that your the rock you're studying is deep enough away from shallow groundwater resources, for example. You want to also make sure that the rock you're studying doesn't have any other types of natural resources like uh, base metals or gold or diamonds, for, for example. You know, you want to you want to be looking for the type of rock that people aren't going to go poking holes in it in you know in the future. Um, that's that's really there are a lot of these general characteristics uh, features of rocks that that we try to avoid. Okay, no, that's a pretty good little overview. I know as much like anything with this project to try to sum anything up into a cute little package is never it's never an easy task. Okay, so let's talk specifically about the Coburg Formation. I've heard it's the target formation for the DGR. What is the history of that formation? You know, like how old is it? What type of rock is it? How is it formed? Um, just a bit of general overview. Yeah, for sure. In this part of Southern Ontario, it's an area that is underlain by sedimentary rocks. And these sedimentary rocks uh, range in age between about 500 and 250 million years old. And now the Coburg Formation is relatively deep within that package of sedimentary rocks. The whole thickness of, of those rocks is about 900 meters, and the Coburg Formation is sitting at about 680 meters deep. And these rocks were deposited on a, on a you know, relatively stable edge of the, the Canadian shield, uh, you know, on the edge of a stable craton. They're extremely flat-lying in our area, 
And, you know, the one of the really interesting characteristics and very useful characteristics is that these formations, the different formations, the Coburg and all the others are very laterally extensive. So you can see the thickness and the, the distribution of the different formations in one part of southern Ontario, and you can trace for tens, hundreds of kilometers across and, and see almost the, almost the exact same sequence uh, and type of rock. So, you know, you can learn a lot about the rock from multiple different boreholes and really start to develop this regional uh, picture and understanding. It's kind of like if you took a cross section, you would see very much the same types of rocks, maybe varying thickness, but the same. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. The, the uh, yeah, the, the same package, the same sequence, you got, you have uh, limestones, uh, deep limestones overlain by shales. Uh, that same sequence can be traced across virtually most of, uh, of uh, Southern Ontario. Okay, and just, just on the topic of limestone, it's, it's maybe going to be a little bit off topic, but just something I'd like to cover. I saw posted, it was a while ago now, someone had taken a picture of a limestone sitting in a field. You know how you see those limestones and they're full of holes and, they're, and they said, oh, this is what we're, we want to, to store our nuclear waste in. It's full of holes. So just for the record, can we clear up if a limestone sitting on the surface will look the same as limestone 700 meters underground? That is a really good question, and I think a, uh, certainly a, a fair and valid question. And what was being pointed out maybe in some of these limestones that have these holes in them, we, we call that, it's a, a process called karstification. And literally part of that rock is being dissolved away through uh, near surface processes. And, you know, the interesting thing is, and it is a feature of some of the bedrock in southern Ontario, but we, uh, we understand where limestone with this specific characteristic is uh, distributed within that that sequence of 900 meters of sedimentary rock there are clear horizons where we see this type of characteristic specifically in in the near surface um, bedrock formations now when we get down deep into the the, the lower part of those sedimentary uh, uh, sequence uh, and including in the Coburg formation the Coburg itself is a limestone but it is actually an argent, what we call an argillaceous limestone. It has a relatively high clay content. So it has different properties than the type of a limestone that would develop this sort of karst texture or characteristic. Uh, so it is, uh, there are ultimately, there are different types of limestones and some of them do produce this, uh, this sort of texture or, or character, but the Coburg formation does not have that sort of open uh, void space in it. I always find it's good sometimes to just clear up some of the some of the misinformation that floats around, especially when I have an opportunity to speak to an expert that doesn't happen every day. So sometimes random things pop into my head and we should cover them. How was the Coburg Formation formed? Okay, so let's go back about 450 million years ago. This part of North America was, uh, you know, slightly closer and uh, closer to the equator. And you can maybe imagine very broad, shallow um, continental platform, maybe not unlike the Great Barrier Reef uh, off, of, off of Australia, you know, very large aerial extent, low energy environment, uh, maybe the, the water level um, fluctuating a little bit, but relatively shallow, a lot of opportunity for, for organisms to be living in the, in the, um, in the muds and in the, in that will ultimately become the, the limestone unit. And so uh, just a very, I guess, a quiet depositional environment. There's not really 
a lot exciting going on from a tectonic point of view in the area necessarily at the time of the of the deep position of the Coburn. And then what happens? But what happens? You know, at some point um, after the deposition of the Coburg, there is a a, a shift and a, a very rapid deepening of the of the water, and then all of a sudden you go from this near surface deposition of, of limestones with a, this clay material in it to marine conditions where you all all of a sudden move to this a transition to the deposition of a very thick sequence of uh, of shales uh, on top of the Coburg Formation. Um, and so like, what is it specifically about the Coburg Formation that makes it the target for the DGR or makes it an appropriate geologic formation? We can picture that 900 or so meters of uh, total of sedimentary rock that's underneath our feet in Southern Ontario. Upper 200 meters, you know, in there, you get some of these other types of limestone with karst and fractures, and, and you're, you're sort of in the, the near surface uh, groundwater environment. Then you get into another uh, sequence of rocks, which is a lot of, a lot of salt layers, including the, the salts that are mined in uh, the Godrich region. And, you know, that's a, maybe another 200 odd meters of, of sedimentary rock. And once you get to down to about, let's say about 450 meters, you get into this 200 meter thick sequence of, of shale, which, and, and so just getting to your, to answer your question, why is the Coburg uh, considered a, a suitable uh, potential location for the, for the DGR, a host formation, is that this approximately 200 meter thickness of shales it serves as a as a natural cap and and barrier rock, so it itself the the shales are extremely uh, robust and impermeable. Ultimately, there's not you're not getting transport uh, either uh, vertically downwards or vertically upwards. So it's like a it's sort of a, a nice rooftop over over top of the Coburg Formation, and then so below these 200 meters of shales are about another 200 meters of argillaceous limestones and the Coburg is at near the top of this a lower section of another 200 meters of, li- of argillaceous limestones. So ultimately the Coburg is sitting below about 200 meters of very impermeable shales and it's sitting at the top of another 200 meters of very impermeable limestones. So it's kind of sitting in the middle, like it's, it's nicely surrounded by a lot of rocks that are extremely impermeable. It also has a very consistent thickness itself, the Coburg Formation of around 25 meters. So plenty of um, volume to, uh, to host the, uh, the actual underground excavations. So it's, uh, and, it, and as I mentioned earlier, these, these um, sedimentary um, formations are extremely laterally extensive and um, relatively flat lying. So you, you understand the geometry, you understand its position within uh, a very impermeable sequence of rocks. And it, it's sort of, you know, just perfectly situated in this, um, in this geological environment to be a, a suitable um, uh, host rock. In my early research um, and looking at early early timescale research of DGRs, you know, back when they first started looking at it, you know, it's kind of changed from you know, a belief that it had to be in salt and that it was, oh, it could be salt or granite. And now it's salt or granite or sedimentary rock. And there are some people who make the statement that the NWMO was just moving the goalposts because this is the type of rock we have here. So we're just going to make it work. 
Like, is there any reason why sedimentary rock would not be an appropriate post rock? Yes, uh, you know there there are uh, certainly there, and again, I think it comes back to the one of your original questions. So you can't necessarily look at all rock uh, as being potential. They, you do have certain characteristics, and in some some sedimentary rock, for example, does have uh, mineral deposits, or in the case of even southern Ontario, hydrocarbon deposits. Further to the south of the area, closer down in you know in uh, the London uh, London area, there are are known hydrocarbon resources that represent a potential uh, you know a potential target for people to in, in the future continue to want to explore and and drill boreholes. Uh, where we are further to the north, based on uh, quite a bit of extensive study, there there's an extremely low low likelihood of there being hydrocarbon resources in the deep subsurface. And so, you know, again, it's, you can't just say all sedimentary rock or all crystalline rock um, or all salt for that matter is or is not a, a suitable um, potential host rock. You really have to look at the specific characteristics of, in this case, the Cobra formation. We, we certainly wouldn't be looking to put the DGR in the in the shallow part of the sedimentary rock sequence where it's in, interacting with the shallow groundwater system, for example. We know that in, in the Coburg, we are well, because again, because of that, that shale barrier layer, we are well disconnected from uh, any of the, the near surface groundwater resources um, and extremely low likelihood that, that it's going to be a, a target for, for future human intrusion, uh, future exploration um, at that depth. Okay, and just to, just to be clear for anyone listening who maybe isn't sure when we're talking about hydrocarbons, we're talking about like natural gas, oils. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So uh, you'd be looking at, uh, at, at oil or uh, ultimately oil or natural gas. Exactly. Correct. Okay. Or in this case, uh, um, you know, uh, even uh, oil shales, uh, for example, because all of the, the sedimentary rocks of Southern Ontario, we, it is at the, at, at some scale, we are in a, a petroleum basin, you know, all of these, these sedimentary packages all throughout North America, have, a lot of them have the potential for hydrocarbon resources, but you do need to have undergone certain conditions of uh, enough burial or, uh, during the, the rock's history and have the right um, rock characteristics. And we do have some rocks that come to the surface at Collingwood, the so-called Collingwood shales. And that sequence does continue uh, into across all of Southern Ontario. We do see a very, very thin layer of hydrocarbon rich uh, material, uh, even beneath South Bruce, but it is so thin. And, and we've, you know, we've looked at this because it is a very important uh, aspect of the, of the story of the suitability of the area. And there is, uh, you know, certainly there's just no volume of, of an economic resource uh, in terms of hydrocarbons uh, at this, in this area. So when OPG was studying the Bruce Power site for their low intermediate DGR, they did some borehole drilling there on site. And I'm under the impression that a lot of what we are assuming makes South Bruce a potential suitable geologic location comes from the boreholes that were done at the Bruce Power site. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how those two things kind of work together and how we're using that information to kind of make assumptions based on South Bruce? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it, it is a very good point. And, and again, it comes back to this basic characteristic of these sedimentary rocks of Southern Ontario. They are 
they are laterally traceable over very large distances. And so, and you're exactly correct, several deep boreholes were drilled at uh, the Bruce nuclear site to investigate the sedimentary rocks uh, over there for the low and intermediate level uh, waste project. Uh, and we learned a, a very large amount about that entire sequence of sedimentary rocks. And now what we are doing is we are testing the hypothesis that we can transfer that information, that understanding across to the South Bruce area. And, and really, we, it is of high importance that we drill these boreholes to test whether we are seeing the same rocks, the same the same formations at, at, at the depths that we would expect them in the order and the sequence of the sedimentary units that we would expect. And then we test them in a similar way that we did at the, the Bruce nuclear site. And you can learn a lot in seeing how the characteristics, the material properties that come out of our testing of the rocks at South Bruce, we can compare them to the understanding we got from the, the Bruce nuclear site. And it will be a very powerful tool in us learning whether the Cobra formation and does have the potential to be a, a host rock for the, the used nuclear fuel. So we at Willing to Listen, it's, it's no secret that we are in favor of the research process and we are in favor of studies going forward so that we can learn and get as much information as we can um, before we're asked to make a decision about whether or not we're a willing host. And I think interestingly is lately, you know, we've heard that boreholes are just a stall. They're a way for the NWMO to stall the process. I obviously don't believe that. Um, I think borehole drilling is extremely important, especially when we look at the number of people in the community who haven't made a decision yet. And to be clear, there are a lot of people who have not made a decision yet. There's a lot of people and willing to listen that haven't made a decision yet. What specifically about the boreholes do you feel is important? Why, other than just to like to verify the rock and its properties? Ultimately, because of the type of uh, geological environment we are in, these are uh, layered rocks. So standing on the surface, you can't directly investigate the rocks that are many layers deep uh, in the earth. Um, so boreholes are, are as close as we can get to direct observation. Uh, now, I fully admit that these are just pinholes in the ground, but really, and again, it is just a basic fundamental characteristic of this type of rock that if we intersect the same sequence of rocks that, for example, we see at the, the Bruce nuclear site, or um, we expect to see based on actually a, a recent three-dimensional geological model that was just produced for the entire Southern Ontario area, we actually have made a prediction of the, the depths and the thicknesses of all the rocks that we expect to, to intersect. And so by drilling these first two boreholes, we will be able to assess very quickly and very easily how close to our conceptual understanding the true distribution of the rocks is in the subsurface. And, and it really is as simple as if the rock sequence is the same and then the testing results that come out are, 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 are the, the picture that's emerging is that the characteristics are similar to what we've seen at the, the Bruce nuclear site, then again, it, it gives us a, a high degree of confidence that the rocks have the properties that we are looking for and which will make them a, a suitable uh, location for the, for the used nuclear fuel.
while we're talking about specific rock properties, especially when we're talking about the comparison to the Bruce site boreholes, I think it's important that we kind of break down a couple of the terms that I know I had to look up <laughs> and uh, try to figure out on my own what they meant. So it might be a good idea to kind of break those down for people. So the first one that I'd, I'd like to talk about is hydraulic conductivity. Can you just kind of give us an an overview in a really simple layman's terms, what hydraulic conductivity means and why it's important. Yeah, sure. So I guess relatively simple um, definition of hydraulic conductivity is that it represents the ease or lack thereof of which water can move through a medium such as a rock. So, you know, you can imagine that in uh, a sand could have a relatively high hydraulic conductivity. It has, you know, little little blocks of silica with a lot of space through it. But a very highly compressed rock that doesn't have a lot of spaces uh, in between the, the, the mineral grains is going to have a very low hydraulic conductivity. It's not easy to move water through. And I guess, uh, and hydraulic conductivity, it's, it's also important that, to understand that the hydraulic conductivity is also a function of permeability, uh, which is, you know, a very similar term, but it is a measure of how easy it is for a rock to transmit fluid. And then you have to really also just, you know, hopefully not too technical, but you also really have to consider the, the type of actual fluid you're, you're dealing with, uh, including the density of that fluid and its viscosity or its resistance to uh, flow. So when we're talking about hydraulic conductivity and, you know, we're seeing, I know in my research about hydraulic conductivity, obviously everything has a different hydraulic conductivity value to it, depending on the medium and things like that. So just to be clear for people, when, you know, we're looking at this in the future, a smaller number is slower water movement. That is exactly right. Yes. So you can think of maybe a better example is uh, gravel is going to have a relatively high hydraulic conductivity, whereas a clay is going to have a relatively low hydraulic conductivity. The other one I'm curious about is diffusion coefficients. What does that mean, that term, and why are those important? Well, again, uh, thinking in relatively simple terms, um, just defining diffusion, for example. So you can imagine that if you were to place uh, a spoonful of sugar in at the bottom of a glass of still water. If you leave it long enough and don't help move it around with a, with a spoon or anything like that, it's just on its own, slowly spreading out in the water. Eventually, you'll end up with a, an even concentration of sugar throughout that whole uh, glass of water. So that's uh, diffusion. And so a coefficient is, again, adding a, uh, a length term and a time term to to define how long it would take for that process to occur. So again, ultimately a material with a relatively high diffusion coefficient means that that process is going to occur relatively quickly. And a material with a, a, a low diffusion coefficient, that process is going to take an extremely uh, long amount of time. Right, so ideally we would want very small number for hydraulic conductivity and a very small number for a diffusion coefficient. That's correct. Okay. And then my other question that kind of, it kind of plays into those things as well. You know, we always hear the scenario where water starts moving through the rock and making its way to the biosphere. 
when water's moving through rock, some of the things in the water bind to the rock, correct? It doesn't all just free flow. Yeah, that's right. And that, um, and I will admit this is getting a little beyond my area, area of expertise, but that is a process um, called sorption. So where certain things will uh, sorb or, or um, stick to, I guess, uh, in a simple way to, to the, the boundaries of the grains as, uh, right. as uh, material is, is transferring through the rock. Okay, and I think like very simply too, I'll, I'm gonna do a whole other podcast on the water aspect, but just, just mm-hmm. from the rock perspective, I think it's important to kind of point out just in general that, you know, just because something is present in the DGR, if water starts to move out of there, it doesn't necessarily mean everything present at the DGR will end up at the end location, right? Some of that stuff will stick to the rock. Right. And, and again, I relating back to some of these terms that, that you're asking me about, if we, if we look at the types of uh, diffusion coefficients that we're seeing in the, uh, in the Coburg Formation, it will take hundreds of thousands of years for material to move uh, on the meter scale uh, in the subsurface. So radioisotopes, if they do make their way out of the the engineered barriers into the the bedrock, the geosphere, the rock itself is still such a strong barrier that it, it ultimately it does inhibit any long distance transport. And so, you know, ultimately there, things are not moving very far in the amount of time, even that we're, we're looking at hundreds of thousands uh, uh, to millions of years. Yeah, I, I was gonna say the hydraulic conductivity number that I saw for the Bruce site was like 3 million years per meter. It was astronomical. When I saw that number, my mind was just blown. I'm like, that is a crazy amount of time to move one meter through this rock. And again, that, that's exactly why, you know, and we've understood that from, from the studies at the Bruce nuclear site. And that is exactly why we, we really would just like to, you know, continue the studies at, um, in the area, in, in the South Bruce area, and understand if, if we see the same material properties emerging. Uh, that is an extremely important step. So I guess the only other thing really that I'd like to cover briefly about um, the geology specifically is seismic activity. We hear a lot lately, even last night at the CLC meeting, they were talking about seismic activity a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me because we don't have large scale earthquakes in South Bruce. We're very fortunate that we don't experience those here. So I'm just wondering a little bit about the seismic activity. Like how is that measured? How do we predict it? Are we expecting to have a massive earthquake here or why is seismic activity important? Well, let's see if I can break that down a little bit. You know, ultimately in terms of how are we measuring um, seismicity? So there are existing seismic stations, there are seismic networks across uh, across Ontario and Canada. We are also adding additional uh, micro seismic stations as part of the work uh, that's going on in South Bruce. So uh, we are going to be measuring extremely low levels of seismicity um, with these micro seismic stations to ensure that that we understand as much of the story as we can uh, of the seismicity. So we are putting in place a monitoring program to continually monitor the seismicity uh, to extremely low magnitudes. Now, just in terms of where South Bruce is located, it really is um, situated within the tectonically stable interior of the North American continent. We have a relatively good idea of where the the major earthquake hazard zones are are in North America. 
the area of South Bruce is characterized by relatively low rates of seismicity. Now, you know, the, the one caveat there is uh, certainly we don't have an extremely long record relative to the age of the earth. We, we have about 180 years of, of record um, in terms of understanding the, the patterns of seismicity. But we've also, you know, again, as, as part of the uh, Bruce nuclear site work, we had an investigation done looking at what's called neotectonics. So recent seismic activity that goes further into the rock record than we have record for. So looking at deposits of sediments left behind after the glaciers melted 20,000 years ago. In these relatively soft sediments, we look for evidence of ground shaking that could have produced, um, you know, things like mud volcanoes or other soft sediment types of deformation that might occur due to seismic, uh, large seismic events in the past. And we haven't found any evidence for what would be called post-glacial um, uh, tectonic activity that would be evidence of high levels of seismicity. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately we we have a relatively good understanding of where we are in terms of the stability of the, of the broader region that, that allows us to make these uh, statements that we are in a relatively seismically quiet uh, location. I'm going to end off with a bit of a question that may be controversial. We hear it said a lot from people who are against the project or opposed to the project. If you work for the NWMO, you're you're maybe not going to be honest about the risks or the benefits, or, you know, you're going to sway things to suit the NWMO. As a human being, would you be willing to put people and their water and their lives at risk because you're paid by a company to do a project? I think that's a pretty easy question. Um, personally, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm a geologist. My job is to characterize the rock. And I have the latitude to raise a red flag, for example, if I see characteristics of the rock that aren't consistent with what we expect or consider as favorable attributes. You know, if we, if we see things that aren't favorable, my job is to, is to document that and, and really present that as a story. I'm a professional geoscientist uh, registered in Ontario, and, you know, there's a, a lot that goes into that. I am very much able to, and I have to separate the job of characterizing the rock from the, the overall project itself. I, I'm looking at the rock and I am characterizing that and understanding positive and or negative attributes, as it were, um, in, in the locations that we're studying. And my job is to tell the geological story. It's not necessarily my decision to, or to, to make any broader citing decisions. I am tasked with putting a balanced and honest story uh, out there for people to uh, hopefully understand and provide and develop their own opinions. I guess all I'm trying to do is, is just, or just, I just hope that people would, would look at what we're doing as geoscientists and, and others in our organization, that all we're trying to do is, is figure a way, out a way to solve this problem that has not been solved for an extremely long time. And, you know, ultimately for the, the communities that, that we're working with and, the, you know, the, the Indigenous communities and, and everyone, I think that, you know, the reason why we're, we're, we're in these locations is because the rocks have these favorable properties and rocks elsewhere maybe do not. You know, it's, uh, we're, we're here because the geology might be amenable to helping us solve this problem. And we are just trying to understand whether that, uh, you know, in, in the case of South Bruce, whether these rocks um, really are 
I guess, up to that challenge. And by right. doing these investigations, we are, we are going to figure that out. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk a little bit about the geology. And, and you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. Geology, geoscience, it's, it is a bit of a different language. It's, it's hard to convey some of these, uh, these concepts. And, well, and sometimes I feel like that's one of the overwhelming barriers to this project, you know, is that nuclear and geology and material science and corrosion, those are things that aren't really well known to a lot of people, right? So you put a, you put a project that complicated and that diverse with all of these different areas of study coming together, and it just becomes this overwhelming thing that, you know, a lot of people just don't understand. It's a very complicated thing to understand, you know, kind of like the terminology. I'd never heard of hydraulic conductivity or diffusion coefficients before, and I have two university degrees. I'd never heard of any of that stuff. So it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, you don't know what you don't know, and it can make it scary. Yeah, and that, you know, that's a, that's a challenge, uh, um, but we do try to take the opportunity when we can to, to do outreach and, and bring people along uh, as we're developing this geological story. And I'm happy to, to answer questions um, on, the, on the rocks. I love talking about rocks. We walk around on ourselves every day and don't necessarily think about the rocks beneath our feet. Um, Mm-hmm. But getting over, maybe it's getting over a little bit of the hump of, yes, it's, it's difficult technical material, but, you know, again, that's our challenge, uh, maybe in geoscience and in engineering side of things everywhere is, is really to try and take what is a very technical, complex problem and tell it in a simple way so that people do have the opportunity to make meaningful um, opinions on this project. When you mentioned the rock under your feet, that is one of the things that I find really cool about the borehole drilling take the dgr right out of the picture and just think of the boreholes how many communities get to have the rock they're standing on analyzed like ours is going to be analyzed that's pretty cool to find out what our town is built on like i think that's really neat that a lot of towns don't get that opportunity i'm pretty excited to find out what's under there and that's great you know that's uh that's the type of excitement i try to bring uh to work you know i'm always as we're drilling, you know, we're, we're, we're drilling, you know, three meter chunks at a time. And I'm always excited to see what's, what's coming out of the next core barrel. You know, what is the rock looking like? It's, uh, it's fascinating. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, spend some time with me on our podcast. And I will look forward to talking with you again. Yeah. And thank you too, Sheila. It's, uh, it's been great. Uh, you know, I really do appreciate uh, having the opportunity. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.